Well, welcome back to the Liberty on Fire podcast. This is your host, Libertarian Tony. Unfortunately, Joey won't be with us today. This is just going to be a quick hits in a news type episode. I do want to do a podcast on the uh, mass shootings, but I do want to have Joey on for that discussion. So that's going to have to wait, even though uh, these mass shootings uh, have been happening in the past week and everybody has already gotten out and commented on it. There's no harm in waiting. There'll be another one. In fact, there's probably a mass shooting in Chicago or Baltimore, you know, every other night of the week. And of course, that doesn't get talked about. But anyway, I don't want to get too deep into that subject. So for today, uh, there's two things I want to talk about. One is about the, the uh, you know, Trump's kind of uh, supposed racist comments about uh, Cummings and Baltimore. So that's one. The other subject I want to talk about is Hong Kong and China. Okay, so first, let's do the Baltimore issue. So Donald Trump uh, tweeted some stuff that apparently got him in some hot water. Uh, He said that Representative uh, Elijah Cummings has been brutal or has been a brutal bully, shouting and screaming at the great men and women of Border Patrol about conditions at the southern border, when actually his Baltimore district is far worse and more dangerous. His district is considered the worst in the USA. As proven last week during a congressional tour, the border is clean, efficient, and well-run. It's just very crowded. And then he said, on Cummings District is disgusting, rat and rodent infested mess. And if he spent more time in Baltimore, maybe he could help clean up this very dangerous and filthy place. Okay, so that's that's what he said to get himself into this hot water. And this, this claim that this uh, Elijah Cummings district is considered, you know, very poorly run and dangerous has been called racist by 99% of the media outlets, right? But does this claim by Trump have any merit? So let's look at maybe a few facts. So in 2018, Baltimore was rated one of the rattiest cities in the nation by the uh, pest control company Orkin. Okay, rattiest. Uh, According to uh, Patch Media, there has been uh, progress in the last few years. However, Baltimore ranks ninth in rat infestation. That's down from its sixth position a couple years ago on the Orkin list. Okay, now how about safety? In 2017, St. Louis had the nation's highest murder rate at 66.1 homicides per 100,000 residents. And guess what? Baltimore came in second with 55.8 murders per 100,000 people. Okay, so that's a pretty unpleasant fact that the, you know, predominantly black and Democratic-run cities have some pretty bad records on public safety, right? An organization called uh, The Trace, which I think is some kind of independent nonprofit news group, uh, they were using 2017 data from the FBI, uh, it's called the Uniform Crime Reporting Program. So it listed 20 major cities uh, with the highest homicide rates. So after St. Louis and Baltimore, Detroit was third, 
with 39.8 murders per 100,000. Uh, other kind of pretty bad cities were New Orleans, uh, Kansas City, Missouri, uh, Cleveland, uh, Memphis, Tennessee, and Newark, New Jersey. Okay, Chicago uh, ranked ninth at 24.1 murders per, per 100,000. And then after Chicago, you had Cincinnati and Philadelphia. And then Washington, D.C. came in uh, 17th. Okay, so think about those numbers, right? And think about who runs those cities. Next, let's talk a little bit about education in Baltimore. In 2016, in 13 of Baltimore's 39 high schools, okay, so it's a third of Baltimore's high schools, not a single student scored proficient on the state's math test, okay? In six other high schools, only 1% tested proficient in math. So in raw numbers, uh, 3,804 Baltimore students took the state's math test and 14 tested proficient. That's ridiculous. Uh, citywide, only 15% of Baltimore's students passed the state's English test. And we know money is not the problem, right? Of the nation's 100 largest school systems, Baltimore ranks third in spending per pupil, right? So that those old talking points that keep coming up uh, with the politicians that they need more money is just patently false. They're getting tons of money per student in their districts. Okay, so back in education. Well, I mean, Baltimore's black students certainly get diplomas that say they can function at a, a 12th uh, grade level, where in fact, many of them can't do 6th or 7th grade level. And these students and their families have little, uh, little, little reason to suspect that their diplomas are fraudulent. Well, of course they are. I mean, this is a perfect example of your government failing your students and your families. And of course, a lot of people like to say that uh, these black students having trouble passing these exams is an example of racism. When they get poor grades in college and flunk out, many people attribute this to racism as well. So the information that black students have is that they have this high school diploma, which says they're proficient and they're really not, but their explanation for unequal outcomes is racism. This same like bad story for poor education outcomes is ubiquitous across most big cities with large black populations. Now, the statistics don't say that black students are dumb. What they say is that the teachers and the government schools are failing the students. Government schools are a failure. I mean, how did we educate our kids before 1978? Right, 1978, when the uh, Department of Education was created, communities got together and they did it on the local level. Students got a much better education before the general government got involved. If you look at the dollars spent on education since the 1970s, that has just gone up and up. That's never come down, not even one year. It's always go, it always goes up. But if you look at student test scores since the 1970s, it's been completely flat. Well, what big thing happened in the 70s that may have caused this flattening of the test scores? Well, of course, I just mentioned it. Government got involved. Anyway, so the, the major problems that black people confront are immune 
to whoever's in office, right? These problems were not fixed under Barack Obama. I mean, all these big cities had horrible test scores throughout Obama's eight years. And, you know, they're not going to be fixed by Trump either. You know, although Trump does have a considerably lower uh, black unemployment rate. But anyway, I think the main lesson uh, for all people, and of course for black people in these cities, is that politicians and government are not your friend. And government handouts are not the solution. If these were the solutions at a public expenditure that tops $22 trillion over the past half century, then black people wouldn't be having these problems. Okay, so maybe we shouldn't be looking to government to fix these problems. They created them in the first place. Okay, now on to the second topic. So for this, I'm going to start out by saying, move over, Iran. You've been displaced by Hong Kong and China. Okay, so what do we have going on? So you're probably aware of some of this, but uh, President Xi and the uh, CCP tried to push through some sort of extradition law in Hong Kong where they could basically get hold of any people living in Hong Kong through some sort of you know, legal arrest warrant process uh, for people they don't like. So anybody saying that the Chinese government should be granting more rights and be more free. China wants to be able to just kidnap those people, which they are doing, by the way, but they want to do it legally and put them in a Chinese prison or probably just kill them outright. But what Xi is proposing here is that he wants to use Hong Kong's own legal system to be an arm of the law for the Chinese government and help you know, abduct these Hong Kong citizens and get them back to China where they can be punished. Okay, so now I think we need to just talk about just a little bit of history. So Hong Kong was like this illegitimate child of the British Empire. And uh, Britain had this grip on uh, global dominance for a long time. And then under, you know, uh, Margaret Thatcher, she kind of saw the writing on the wall and that it was inevitable that Britain was going to lose this territory back to China. And so I think she sped up the process a little bit with some preparations to kind of ensure a more peaceful transition. So you have the people in Hong Kong have no say who their parent is, okay? And now, 22 years later, after the handoff, they still don't have a say of, you know, who rules over them, okay? However, the problem is that the people of Hong Kong have been experiencing a boatload of freedom and self-expression for more than two decades now, and they don't want to give it up, and China doesn't like it. China is one of the world's most totalitarian regimes. Uh, the Chinese call it uh, one nation, two systems, which is a little crazy, right? Because once you give people some freedom, they get the taste of that liberty and being able to decide what they want to do with their lives. They don't want to give that up. So. You know, old uh, Margaret Thatcher, she was pretty smart. So one of the, you know, I guess best negotiators of her time, knowing they had to let Hong Kong go, but as part of the negotiation to, you know, give Hong Kong back to mainland China, um, she put a little bit of freedom spice in that negotiation, which namely talks about like a 50-year treaty essentially saying, you know, Hong Kong is yours, China, but... For 50 years, you can't really touch it. So the problem with this agreement is that if it can't be enforced, 
well, then it really isn't worth the paper it's printed on, right? And if you look around, I mean, who's going to enforce this treaty? I mean, Britain's out. They're not going to do it. NATO's not going to do it. I mean, that's an ineffectual uh, organization, which is pretty much just the United States anyway. And so now, of course, that leaves just America. Well, if, if America intervenes with the military, well, then we're screwed. I mean, really, really screwed. This is going to be a big-time war. If America doesn't intervene, well, then the people of Hong Kong are screwed. So this comes at a really bad time for China, right? Their export-led system has been taking a huge hit with you know, this whole Trump trade war. Their economy is slowing. People around the world are deciding they just don't want to buy any more Chinese junk. And the Chinese have been responding by devaluing their currency. Okay, now, a separate podcast, maybe in the future, Jilly and I will talk about, um, I guess, the Fed and, you know, fractional reserve banking and our system, and that the United States has been one of the worst currency devaluators in the history of mankind, but that's a whole separate podcast. Anyway, so you, you have a country that is trying to make their, their goods look cheaper to the rest of the world by devaluing their currency, right? So if their goods look cheaper, then they're hoping that other foreign countries are going to buy more of them, right? So the, that's, that's kind of what the Trump tariffs are helping uh, China do. They're helping China decrease the value of the currency even further. However, they, the Chinese people now run into a problem, right? Once the Chinese citizens uh, continue to realize that their currency is being put under pressure, mean, meaning that their Chinese yuan, right, their currency will buy them less and less goods and services every year, well, they take one step closer towards losing faith in their currency. And when a country, when a people loses faith in their currency, then you have problems. And we're talking real problems here. This is where mass-type revolutions happen, and you end up with millions of people dead. So this really isn't supposed to happen. You have the Chinese people who are, they want to have faith in their government, right? And so the deal between the the Chinese people and their government is that uh, the government continues to deliver economic growth and, you know, all the peasants get a little bit wealthier and they start becoming non-peasants. But then when that happens, they start to think more about politics and economics and they educate themselves. So now knowing a little bit about politics, economics, and currencies, when your, own when your own country is devaluing your currency and making your life harder, you start to question whether that government is good for you anymore. Okay, so let's talk about this just a little bit more. So as people get wealthier, their means of decision-making increase, right? Their options increase. And when their options increase, they start thinking about being at the teat of the government and start to act more on their own and more aggressively. Now, China now has a middle class, and that's way different than the generation under Mao where everybody was a peasant and they were governed by the, you know, uh, I guess Chinese government thugs, okay? So you have a lack of economic growth and the relative kind of calm that exists on a domestic level which threatens to shatter. And we know for a fact that 
China has hundreds of protests every year, but thus far has been managed, you know, they've managed to keep them in check. And the Chinese government knows that a nasty economic downturn threatens their own purses or, you know, their own coffers. That actually puts them in a situation where they're pressured to not only win, but really substantially tap down any ideas uh, of freedom that the citizens on the mainland get from Hong Kong. So, in turn, this means some sort of harsh response to any Hong Kong protests. Okay, and this dovetails into the whole idea of kind of national unity or nationalism by China. I mean, this is essential for them to survive. Or I should say it's essential for the government to survive in China. And this is one of the main reasons that they want Hong Kong to be kind of more fully integrated into mainland China. Because China has been relatively quiet about Hong Kong for years. However, now this is coming back to bite them. And I think the Chinese government kind of overplayed their hand a little bit. They thought they could get this, you know, extradition bill kind of pushed through without much fuss. But they probably weren't counting on these massive uh, protests in Hong Kong. So in a way, these protests in Hong Kong have kind of backed the Chinese government into a corner. Do they send in the military and kind of quell the protests and take Hong Kong back permanently? Or do they let it go? Well, if they send in the military and try to take Hong Kong over completely, I don't think America is going to sit well with that. And if they let it go, that sends a message to the mainland Chinese people. And they're going to start wanting their own freedoms. And that's not going to be good for the Chinese government either. So another country close by is probably watching this very carefully. And that would be Taiwan. If the Chinese military invades, the people in Taiwan are, are going to want to see is if the U.S. comes to the aid of the people in Hong Kong or they kind of just you know, wag their fingers and make a lot of uh, political speeches. If the U.S. doesn't back the people of Hong Kong and get involved, helping to push back the Chinese military, then Taiwan is going to know that the U.S. is full of hot air. And this is not going to be good for that country. They're going to all of a sudden think, well, is China going to take us over next? So, you know, there are some serious questions ahead, and none of the answers are bright and cheery. You know, Hong Kong is like the financial center in Asia. So we would expect, if the Chinese invaded with the military, that a lot of capital would flee Hong Kong and never come back. So this would completely crush the Hong Kong economy and their business system. We would also expect, at the same time, that our relationship with China, I guess kind of improved maybe over the past 30 years, would be forever changed. Just think about all the foreign companies that do business in Hong Kong. Would they stay there if the Chinese invaded and took, the, took that little you know, piece of land over? Would they completely end their relationship with China altogether? I've already seen articles out there talking about businesses and people moving their capital and their companies from Hong Kong to Singapore. Singapore is another, I guess, big financial hub out in Asia. If the Chinese truly invade, Singapore is going to see an absolute flood of, you know, frightened money. And Hong Kong's kind of preferential, you know, trading status with the U.S. 
uh, and most of the West would almost certainly be rescinded, and most of their trade would completely take a dump. So please keep watching this tense situation. I'm uh, hoping and praying that this trade war with China really doesn't shoot into a shooting war. But a lot of times, that's exactly what happens. And this is why, you know, although Trump has, I guess, good intentions of trying to help the uh, American worker or American businesses with these tariffs on China, I really hope this doesn't escalate into a war with that huge country. Well, that will do it for today. Thank you all for listening to the Liberty on Fire podcast. Please do me two favors. Number one is to share the show. Remember that we want to continue to advance the message of individual liberty, and sharing and growing the show is one of the best ways to do that. The second favor is to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes. A five-star rating is much appreciated. Also, please check out our website, libertyonfire.org. Thank you very much. And until next time, let's keep those fires of liberty burning bright.